From WHQR Public Media, this is the Newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for joining us. Later on today's show, my colleague Kelly Kinoyer sits down with Wave Transit's outgoing executive director, Marie Parker, who recently left to start work as an assistant town manager in Carborough. Over the last two years, she has helped write the ship at Wave, and they'll talk about what she's accomplished, plus the fallout from the failed vote on a proposed transit tax and Parker's dreams for public transit in the Cape Fear region. But first, we're sitting down with Dr. Charles Faust, superintendent of the New Hanover County Schools District. Over the last month, there were two incidents at Ashley High School where students brought firearms onto campus. And they weren't isolated incidents, as there's been an uptick in the number of both weapons and drugs on school property. Faust responded by announcing the district was adding police canine units to search for drugs and weapons. He also said he would be asking the district attorney to prosecute violators to the, quote, full extent of the law. And he asked for help from the public to, quote, take back our communities. He joins me now to get into what all that means. Dr. Charles Faust, thanks for being here. I want to start by asking, from where you sit, what does the problem we're talking about, which is guns and drugs being brought onto school campus and maybe violence and crime more broadly, look like to you? It is a problem we're just facing across America. The landscape of education has changed drastically. The ability for students to get um, their hands on anything, uh, good or bad, has drastically changed. It's trying to help people understand, one, that things have changed, and also trying to help students understand that things have changed, and also trying to help students understand that or illegal items cannot enter into the school. I don't believe they understand. This is not a video game. This is not social media. The things that you may see on TV cannot be your reality. And I think fighting against what they see may be, I'm not even using, going to use the word mythological, because for some that, that's real for whatever the video is that they're seeing. Being educated in, a, in, a, in an educational facility, that, that has no place in it. And when I see the, the young individuals coming to school to do harm or whatever their, their background is, that pains me because I'm like, that's not the education that I grew up in. That's not the 26, it'll be 26 next year, 26 years that I put forth. I'm a traditional educator, meaning I got a degree in elementary education, a minor in English, I have a master's in this, doctorate. Everything that I've worked for came to support the educational, public education. But then to see one, two, three individuals try to take away what we went to school to support, there has to be a stop to it. So you do feel like something has changed. This isn't just, you know, social media over-exaggerating the incidents, like there has been a paradigm shift in the school. There has been a paradigm shift, and um, I've noticed it. the The DA has noticed it. Judges have noticed it. And what's so interesting is that it's not just isolated to us. Like this is, we want to study national levels. Yes, what I'm seeing is that we are probably on the. It's been going on in other cities, in other larger districts, but it's now making its way. And so what we have encountered is we are looking at things that have been outside of our landscape 
and now it's in our front door, it's in our in our schools. And the school that we used to look into and say, oh, this will never happen, no one would ever do this, we're finding that there are kids and there are people who are doing just so. So specifically here we're talking about bringing firearms and drugs mm, yes. onto school campuses. Yes. And I wonder, certainly the availability of some of these things has has increased. Do you think that's the whole story or do you think there are maybe new or more intense pressure to do those things for a student to bring a gun to campus, for a student to bring drugs on campus? Or is it just that it's just they always would have, but it's now easier to get a hold of? I think there are two answers to that. For for some, I believe that it's easier to get um, a device or an illegal substance. For some, it's their reality. And so I can't, I've not taken the opportunity to sift through the why. Um, I just know that in our setting, individuals, children are not supposed to have to worry if the student sitting beside them has gun, um, a weapon, illegal um, drugs. That's not what they should be worried about. And now that it's a little more aggressive in the schools, we have to come out with a more aggressive approach to say, partnering with the sheriff's department, partnering with the, the DA's office, if you do this, this is what is going to happen. It hasn't been that um, this didn't happen. It's just that I'm actually now articulating to those students, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. And it's not just one student. This is for all students. And so when individuals may say that it's a little bit too harsh, I'm saying it was always there. All I'm doing is reiterating what we've always done and making sure that those students who can get their hands on a weapon so that they know, let, let me think twice before I do this. Ben David has been very direct about how he sees, for example, bringing a weapon onto mm-hmm. a school campus. Mm-hmm. Um, he's had that conversation with us. Mm-hmm. I wonder how you think about the court system now. It's, you know, Ben David and Jay Corpening have, have been, you know, here to talk about this. Uh, they're ACEs-informed, <coughs> trauma-informed courts mm-hmm. where they are, instead of throwing the book at someone, trying to figure out the root causes of their behavior and maybe even mitigate prosecution. Mm -hmm. How do you hold that in one hand and then also have a clear disincentive for people to to break the rules, have a clear deterrent value? So in the event that a student does break the law and it has to go to the judicial system, our investigation doesn't stop. And we actually give out consequences that are in line with our policy um, that's in our handbook. So yes, you may go through the courts and they say X, but through the school system, we may say X for this one. One of the other measures you've suggested is uh, increased presence of drug dogs and weapons dogs. I'm just curious, do you feel like that's going to be necessary temporarily, or is that? do you feel like that's the new normal? You know, for now, that's the new normal. I understand the trauma, but I also understand that you have got to address what is causing trauma, and there may be things that are going on in the outside realm but that is not, that may be causing that person trauma, but you bringing a weapon to school will cause others trauma. So what I can do is make sure that those students who are in the building, 
who we see every single day, um, those parents drop those students off that we are giving them firsthand. There, there's an increase in um, our SROs. There's an increase in our um, the the dog the wep- the dogs who will sniff um, for drugs and for for weapons. Those are things that I can definitely say we are doing. Um, and then you know there are avenues we have. Our our commissioners have afforded us with the opportunity to have. Um, social workers, additional social workers, additional um, individuals to work with mental health care, those are also in our building. But I cannot negate that because you have a mental health issue that I'm not supposed to keep everyone else safe. And so I don't think we can stand up and I, I mean, I'm going to choose not to stand up and argue with what's going to look different for an individual who has trauma versus one who is bringing a weapon in the school. So if you have trauma, I understand, but you'll have to work that out in the court system. Because if you bring a weapon or gun or drugs, this is what we're going to choose. Some of the things I've heard from parents are hard to reconcile. I've got parents who want hardening, right? So they want mm-hmm. armored vestibules. They want you know razor wire. They want 10 SROs, a, you know, a small army of canines, whatever it takes. And other parents who feel like that is a, a psychologically damaging place for a kid to be. Like, um, I think of train stations in New York City after 9-11. Mm-hmm. Some people felt much safer having 10 NYPD guys with M4s at every entrance and exit. And some people felt a little nervous. Right. Um, and then I've heard some parents who honestly think both. You know, and I, I know you can't possibly make everyone happy, but how do you think about that balance? So when we look at data and statistics through the lens of law enforcement in conjunction with our policies and what we want to ensure in our schools. We make our decision based on that. We back out all emotion and we, we pull in data and say, what does the data look like? And it's not a secret. I've already told you that this is what we're going to do. So you know, what it appears, how it appears, what it looks like. You know, safety's safety for me. And there will be critics, on, as you just stated, on, on both sides. But I have to look and see, okay, do we not have law enforcement visual, visual, visible and something happens? Or do we have law enforcement to mitigate what could possibly happen? I'm going to lean more on the side where we have law enforcement visible and we mitigate it versus the other. When you say, I'm just curious, when you say data, what, what are the data sets that you, that you look to for a problem like this? So we look at, of course, our student data. We look at, um, we also work with the law enforcement and so they have data that they're looking out in, in the community. Um, we look at the information from the schools to see um, specifics. Um, and I can't go as far in, in, into what that will look like. And we, of course, we have social workers, we have mental health workers in our buildings. And those individuals may say, well, they didn't ask me personally, but we extracted your data. And so the data that you took actually gave us the insight. I understand that there's, you know, there's purpose, so you can't go too far down that mm-hmm. road, but you are talking about getting, taking the temperature of the student population, maybe? Absolutely. Yeah. 
Speaking of those mental health professionals, I know that you have taken a considerable amount of flack on social media for essentially the COVID relief funds mm -hmm. running out. But in, in a world where money was not the issue, mm -hmm. say right. strictly a hypothetical, the New Hanover County endowment was to say, here's $10 million a year for, for mental health in the schools. Do you think that would move the needle on this issue or is it is that the wrong tool for this problem? I'll be honest, I would have to say two things. It depends. We would literally have to take a strong look and say, you know, with mental health therapists in our schools, honestly, is it reducing or is it not reducing? And that, again, I don't know if it is or not. We have so many supports that individuals, what individuals are seeing um, are, 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 you know, the, the, the shift from ESSER to not ESSER. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that we still don't offer those services. We're just not offering them through ESSER. And so... But it is, it is a reduction in the total amount of staff. To some. Yeah. But what I have to help under, in, individuals understand is that the school was never set up to be a mental health setting. So that's why I can't necessarily say, well, those are the professionals. But in order for those individuals to get to that setting, someone has to document and say, this is what this individual needs. So we do have contracted services outside of the schools that work in there. So if an individual is in need, we still have our social workers we still have, there are still going to be mental health therapists in the schools. We just use a different type of contract that work for them. They're just not now zoned in or three in one school. But there's still that opportunity for us to refer students to get the services that they need. I'm a little confused about how it could be the same level of support if you had to cut, if you, if you had to reduce the amount you're spending on it. Am I getting this wrong? Is that not mean less services available? Or is this something that, that parents would pay for on their own or maybe health insurance would cover? So when we use contracted services, so we contract for different needs in our school. Um, if we see a need for a service for a school, if there's a high ticket in data that warrants it, we contract and have that individual come to the school and that service is offered. Yeah. So what we have to understand and what people have to understand is that everyone... No, get in trouble for saying this, maybe screaming mental health, but is it mental health? It may not be mental health. It may be something else. And so we have to run an autopsy and say, well, what is it? It may be something else that's causing the behavior. I did want to ask, I mean, obviously the media jumps on like a pack of dogs when there's a gun at a school. But there's a lot of violence that doesn't involve weapons. Right. I mean, I've heard of several, I mean, I don't want to be too specific, but a, a really nasty fight at a high school, I believe it was in a bathroom, that left the whole bathroom bloody. I mean, how, how do you handle something like that, where it's, you know, a metal detector wouldn't stop that, a gun-sniffing dog wouldn't stop that. This is just violence. Mm -hmm. So in the event that there's a fight, um, there, there are protocols that we use. So we would, we look at counseling. So we have our guidance counselors. We look to see... What was the cause? What was the root cause of it? And so they're setting up um, opportunities when those individuals come back because they can't stay in school. If that's a fight, you can't stay in school. So they are 
um, creating a protocol for that individual student or those students, which it may be individual and it may be group, probably not with the same group that was in the, in the, um, the altercation, because our goal is to work through it. But we know that there are going to be disagreements, but we've also got to share and help individuals understand that we use our words, not our hands. You cannot go around putting your hands on people. That's never going to, that's never okay. And you may disagree with them. So what we do as a, an organization is we help provide them with language that when you are getting to that explosive part of your, your you know, you can't take it, you've got to do something, there are things that you need to know about yourself. And sometimes it's, you know, it may be walk away. I mean, there are different mechanisms. There are people we do a check-in process, a check-out process. Um, there's a buddy system with the adults and the, the kid. There are um, situations where the um, we do small group therapy with the, the students. So we do certain things, and it, but it depends on the student. You know, sometimes we bring in the parents and say, well, what is it that you and the child, what can you agree to? We put contracts together with our students. We think of behavioral contracts only with a, with a certain type of student, but a behavioral contract can run the gamut. And so we, we choose to do those types of things. School is no longer just to educate um, with, you know, we're doing algebra, we're doing, you know, um, CTE and advanced placement tests. We are getting down in the grunt of it and trying to find out what some of the root causes are. And, you know, we're not going to stop doing that. It's just that we have to figure out when we're looking at, is it mental health or is it something that we can get the community involved in to help support us? From your point of view, I mean, what are the other things the community could do to handle their part of this burden? So we do have um, on our website, like, the See Something and there are anonymous ways that you can tip off the school, um, and you don't have to say who you are. You can always call 911. Um, you can call the, the school principal. You can send an email. And when I think of school community, I'm not just thinking about those that are encapsulated around the school. It goes broader. If you see something, hear something, let the authorities know. I think of if it were your child, going to that school and you saw something, what would you want? What would you want someone to do? So let me go ahead and just pick up the telephone. Even if it does not amount to anything, it's better for us to go and investigate. And we do that. And, and so when it's called into the system, it of course we get an output and sometimes uh, law enforcement also gets an output. So there are also times where their law enforcement isn't just working here in New Hanover, but there are tips that come from out of state, um, out of county that lets us know. And so we're able to work through that. But as a community, um, when I say that we need the community to help us take the schools back, when you see something, just call. And I would say if when you don't know who to call, call law enforcement. They'll definitely get it to the right place. Talking about that kind of non-weapon related interpersonal violence. Have you seen an uptick in that? Because that's, I hear more about that than I did four years ago, but, you, you know, that's anecdotal. So from your point of view, has, has that behavior gotten worse? And do you have any idea, if so, why? So, of course, I would be giving my opinion sure. as to why. I think a lot of it stems from social media. 
So oftentimes, kids aren't literally talking face-to-face with one another. They're keyboard warriors. There's no emotion when you send um, a DM or whatever, Snapchat back and forth. You're not looking at that person in the, in the face. And so then when you come face, it just, everyone's seeing it. So you have an audience. And then individuals are getting in, and they are, they are giving you that courage. And I call it keyboard courage. That's what they've given that person. So then we are on the receiving side, we being the school, of something that we, that we knew nothing about. And so we've got to figure out, well, what's going on? But by the time that we've found out, sometimes there will be someone that will uh, let us know. But if they don't, then something happens, and then we're having to trace it down through social media. The last question I want to ask you about is about, okay, something bad has happened in one of the schools. The communication with parents. They're disturbed that they are getting phone calls regularly, but they appreciate it. They think it's pretty quick. But there's certainly other parents who are hearing about it from their kids, even if it's a few minutes before they hear from the school. They're, they're hearing a filtered, sometimes distorted version of what's happening in the school from kids first and then from the school. Is that an unwinnable battle, or do you think there's room for improvement there? So we will never be able to beat um, a text message from a child to their parent. We will never be able to beat the voice of a nervous child to his or her mom or dad. So it doesn't matter what I say, but if my child sends me a text and first starts off to say that I'm scared or I'm nervous, I'm already like, what's going on? And then if the district follows up minutes later to say X, Y, Z, I'm like, well, yeah, but there's something else going on. So I get, I understand all of it. What I will say is that we do follow a protocol, and I keep using the word protocol. <laughs> there is a protocol that we have in place. And when we are um, shelter in place versus lockdown, we have to check some boxes. And we have to make sure that what we are, because when we push out a message, whether it's the principal or the district, if the principal is pushing it out, if it's 2,200 students, they're pushing out to 2,200 students. Whereas, again, I can't race against a student who mom and dad and then parents and it just kind of keeps going. This is what's going on. So, of course, we are going to say that X school was, um, has been put on lockdown at whatever time and give a debrief because what's happening is that law, law enforcement is actually doing their business at that time. So I can't then put out what's going to happen because we don't give a message to the staff when we're in lockdown to tell them what is going on in that school. They just know that um, these are, at the beginning of the year, whenever we're doing training, we're all we're telling them what could cause a lockdown. And so they then go into lockdown mode. So I will say for parents and, and, and students, yes, we do send the communication out, but it'll never beat or trump the voice of a student telling the parent. And I get it. Yeah. I do. The one complaint I hear from parents is that often um, the email sent out or the message sent out by school will say, there was a threat, we investigated and found out it wasn't. And then they then turn to us in the media for more details. And they want to know, you know, was it a gun in a backpack or was it a Snapchat from Alabama? You know, it could be a very real and present threat or it could be a very vague and generic threat that's probably cropping up over Mm -hmm. half the seaboard. Is, Is there a reason why you might not include some of that information so it, de- it depends. <laughs> um, if it is a spoof, 
then yes, we can say it's a spoof and this is what happened. If there is something else that is in line with a student and FERPA, then you won't hear. Like that's a discipline, like I'll, even a student who was on a bus or who got in trouble, you never hear. They just understand that we handled it. The individuals who are guardians over that child, they have the complete rundown of what has happened and where we're going. But we just can't release that information to parents. All right, Dr. Charles Faust, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Okay, well, we've got to take a quick break. But when we come back, my colleague Kelly Kinoyer sits down with Marie Parker to talk public transit. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for joining us. This month, Wave Transit's executive director of two years is leaving the region to move back to the Raleigh area. Marie Parker joined Wave during a tumultuous time, and she has more or less put the region's public transit back on track. WHQR's go-to transit reporter Kelly Kinoyer brought her in for an interview to see her off. Marie Parker, executive director of WAVE, thank you so much for joining me. Yes, thank you for having me. So I would love to talk to you like this is an exit interview. And just to start, can you tell me when you came into WAVE, um, it was kind of in a point of transformation. Can you tell me what you saw when you were coming in and what you were hoping for? Um, I guess seeing coming in, I already knew that there were going to be operational challenges. Um, It was also, you know, kind of at the height of COVID. Um, Having been in public transit, I knew there was, you know, a gamut of things that were going on industry-wide as well as statewide and locally. So um, I kind of didn't have expectations other than knowing there were challenges that existed both operationally and financially for this system specifically and that they had um, experienced a few years of um, maybe some some negative press amongst other things and most of that had to do with the budget and and the financial forecast for the organization. So just coming in knowing that I had to look at it from a fresh pair of eyes, um, understand what the system was doing, not only at the current moment in time, um, industry-wide, but in the midst of COVID and in a new city, and also trying to understand where it had came from, the history of the system, also trying to envision where I want it to be in the future. Um, That also meant understanding the community and what the needs are here in Wilmington as they're different in every city. Um, This is a more unique city from where I came from, a more urban environment. This has a lot more tourists and a lot more... um, workers that are in the service industry. So taking that into account um, is just a lot coming in and just trying to navigate all the pieces and kind of figure out where we were going to go from where I came in. I know that you came from Raleigh. Yes. So drastically different situation. Can you talk a little bit about um, what what the differences were that you saw? You mentioned the tourists. Um, I know the built environment is quite different. So how did that factor in? And I also know that the budget and some of the the elements that were relevant in Raleigh, you had bus rapid transit there. We don't have that here. So uh, what are some of the differences you saw coming in? Yeah, um, Raleigh had bus rapid transit in development. There's 
still developing it now. They're building out the um, the avenues that are going to accommodate BRT. So that was obviously in development. There was a very high use of public transit in Raleigh. I think it had a longer history and a much wider use by the general population. Um, it wasn't seen as something that was um, for a certain part of the city or for a certain um, type of person or individual. It was seen as something that you know professionals used it, everyday workers used it, people used it to go grocery shopping. Um, I, I don't think it is as heavily used here, and I think the main um, reason for that is because it's not as available as it was in Raleigh from a place that I came from. It was um, very heavily funded and supported in Raleigh, both locally and from a county perspective. There was a half-cent sales tax that was passed um, a few years before I left. So um, we were already adequately funded prior to that, but that just gave us um, a huge windfall of money that we were able to spend and kind of um, use it to fund pie-in-the-sky ideas like BRT, like putting in electric buses, like adding, you know, much more service between 2018 and 2019. I think we added 40% overnight um, by the year end and year start, January 1st on 2019. So there was a lot of service added due to a sales tax implementation and the public support of it as well as the local support of it. So funding was never an issue. So we were able to uh, adequately fit the public transit to the community and making sure that we were meeting the needs and putting the transit before kind of before the need instead of being responsive and reactive to it we were being proactive and putting transit in places that we knew it would be needed in the future or where we anticipated a need because of future building or development yeah i know that that has a lot to do with funding and it's interesting that you bring up the cultural part um, people in raleigh expect to be able to use transit and it's more commonly used by a wider segment of the population Whereas here, because it's less established and because it's slower frequency, people don't rely on it, so they don't uh, see the need to fund it. And we saw that when it came to the transit tax, uh, which failed on, in the last election. Um, that was definitely a, a, a waypoint in, in your time at, the, at WAVE. So I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about um, what you had hoped to see change because of the quarter cent sales tax and how you had to pivot after the that went down. Yeah, um, I think a lot of people may view the sales tax loss on last November's ballot as um, a failure. I do not. I thought it was an overwhelming success only because the vote was 47.53, like 3%. Had it been 3.1%, it would have been successful. I will say also, every single transit tax that was on every ballot across the state fa failed yes. in this in this last election. So it's not like WAVE was alone in that situation. It was across the board. Accurately, because, you know, there's been a lot of talk over the past 12 months of our um, economic environment and how people are responding to that. People um, are starting to be a little bit more conservative in the way that they vote, whereas, you know, where I came from in Raleigh several years ago, it was a different economic environment. So people were a little bit more willing to put more money into it. And, it's, you know, it's in perpetuity. So people are expecting to spend that money over a lifetime. So again, I think it was a success in its own right that it got to where it was and that it was so 
um, heavily supported, which I fully anticipated. I expected that after getting out in the community for so many months and talking to so many people, I anticipated that there would be a lot of support. Um, I planned for both scenarios, for um, a pass or a not pass. I won't call it a success or a failure, but we planned for both scenarios knowing what our budget was going to be for the current year and following years and how we were going to um, pivot and um, navigate our budget for the future. We already know that we're, we're facing that fiscal cliff. There are a lot of agencies across the country because of the expiration and consumption of the CARISA funds and the IIJA funds that those are going to go away. They were never going to be permanent injections from the federal government. A lot of people are having to um, adjust their budgets going forward and you know, even more so for us because we rely so heavily on federal funding. It is more, a little bit more dramatic for us going forward after FY24. So that's starting in the summer of 2024 that that'll impact the budget of WAVE. Correct. Can you say a little bit about how you've planned for that contingency, for the fiscal cliff that we're going to hit next year? Um, We are obviously trying to tap every possible um, financial outlet that there is. We are continuously having discussions with our local partners, both the city and county, about how to um, plan for future years beyond FY24 and what that will mean locally. We are also trying to draw upon resources that we already have established. Um, We are seeing some incredible ridership returns after our investment from last year. Um, So organically growing our ridership and creating revenue streams where they already exist, as well as taking advantage of partnerships that we have with social services and um, the Senior Resource Center, as well as others, to make sure that we are having um, open communication. We're building our relationships. We're making sure that they know that we're available and ready to serve them and potentially building upon the revenue streams that we already have. Uh, We also have a grant that we were awarded back in December from USDOT that was given to NCDOT that's going to mean a huge injection into our local microtransit um, that will provide much more microtransit service in New Hanover County and the Cape Fear region, uh, primarily Wilmington and surrounding areas. So that will also provide a little relief for us going forward um, so that we don't have to incur that burden locally or on our partners and we'll be able to rely on that funding from them. And that is expected to be um, at least a three-year project. So You've gotten some grants. Have you filled most of that gap, all of that gap, or is it still? Are you still expecting to see some loss in service next summer? There will, without any further funding, which has not been committed by any party at this point. Um, like I said, we're still having discussions. There will be a shortfall effective FY twenty five. Okay, well, we've got to take another quick break, but we'll be right back with more of Kelly Kinoyer's interview with Wave Transit Executive Director Marie Parker. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Newsroom. I'm Ben Schockman. We're returning now to my colleague Kelly Kinoyer's interview with Marie Parker, outgoing Executive Director for Wave Transit. I do want to give you the opportunity to um, talk about some of the laurels because you've 
you've instituted some award-winning changes at WAVE. Um, you mentioned the Ride Micro initiative. So uh, talk about some of the positive changes that you've made. Um, you've increased ridership. I know you changed the map last yes. summer. So tell me a little bit about um, some of those positive changes that you've made, even within the co- constraints of the budget that you have at WAVE. Yeah, um, three huge projects. Um, I I won't even limit it to that because I talked about the NCDOT grant we got, which is going to be huge for this region. You're talking about over a million dollars being invested into microtransit, which is um, phenomenal. Um, One of our projects that I'm very proud of is the passenger amenities project. When I got here, I realized very quickly that we did not have enough shelters. We didn't have enough covered shelters, benches, seating, um, concrete pads, just as a percentage throughout the city and throughout our routes, we did not have an adequate amount compared to other cities in North Carolina even um, as a ratio, not as a numerical value. So I don't want people to think, well, we're not going to have you know hundreds of shelters compared to a Raleigh or a Charlotte naturally, but as a ratio we had a much less number than everyone else doing an equity analysis. And I wanted to make sure that we could take advantage of any monies and just pour that, funnel that into passenger amenities so people do have a lighted, safe, covered, sheltered place to sit or stand and wait for buses as they arrive. It makes such a huge impact. And it it can positively affect ridership. If people know that they have somewhere that they can sit and wait on the bus, and they know they're not going to be standing out in the rain or standing in a mud puddle, it can definitely make a a big difference. And we've already kicked that off. We have already installed um, about half a dozen stops along College Road. We had a mile and a half gap that had no bus stops, zero. And the standard for the industry is about a quarter mile. So you're supposed to have a bus stop somewhere along the route every quarter mile. And then we had, you know, we did an analysis, staff did an analysis and saw throughout the city where we had these areas that had huge gaps where we weren't serving people that lived around our routes. We had a route, but they didn't have any way to take it because we had these huge gaps. And we've already done that along College Road. We're going to put a lot more downtown as well as on Wooster. Those are pole stops. Um, Those are really inexpensive to implement, so we can get those done relatively quickly. Um, We've already started that project. We replaced two of our shelters that were aging and dilapidated. They didn't have sidewalls or back walls or trash receptacles or anything else. And that was done at Roses and Walmart. Um, We're going to have about 20 more shelters and 20 more benches that we're going to roll out in the next 12 months. And they're going to have concrete pads and, and waste receptacles and bike racks and they're solar lighting they're you know they're going to be um fully equipped for anyone ada full 100 percent ada accessibility so that's going to make a huge difference and that's one of the things i'm, I'm really proud of obviously the microtransit which mm-hmm. we've been touting for quite a long time we're going into our third year in october 100 um, percent funded by the state Um, for the regional routes. Obviously, our local routes are lesser funded. Um, We just spent our first local funding in our current budget year, which is a little bit over $300,000, which is still less than the two routes that we replaced it with. 
How popular is microtransit now? Microtransit, I am proud to announce, in April we had our highest ridership month to date at over 1,600 trips for the entire month. So um, it is doing amazing. Um, We are breaking records everywhere, I think. Uh, excuse me, that was in March. And in March, also, we had a high, our highest ridership in our fixed route since COVID. So in three years, we had our highest ridership. We almost hit 50,000 trips for the month, um, compared to an average 43,000 trips for the last 36 months. So we are, are breaking records. We're doing great. We're having amazing progress. Um, three of the routes that we invested in last year, the 108 uh, Market Street, 201 uh, Carolina Beach Road, and the 107 College Road are all seeing double-digit increases, um, 22, 29, and 60% increases in just the time since July 1 of last year through now compared over our previous fiscal year. So we're doing amazingly in the routes that we have invested in. Um, so those are some some really big things that I think that we've gotten accomplished that I'm most proud of. And then obviously the quarter cent sales tax, taking that out. Um, when I came in the door, we were positioned to reduce service. It had already been voted on. A consultant had been brought in. Um, they had already done their study and said that our best way moving forward was to reduce service to meet our budget restrictions, which obviously was the best way to meet um, what we had at the time. But then, you know, we were able to get some more federal funding and we were able to make a few expansions. So being able to go from Um, being committed to service reductions to actually adding service last year and then it proving huge successes is just so phenomenal and a great thing and just such a wonderful thing to be proud of yeah it's it's been awesome I mean you you came in to an agency that was kind of in crisis and it was about to shrink so much and then you got this microtransit in place and it made a big difference it really did and I see it all the time people take these routes all the time and I would say it's a lot more convenient than what was available before. Um, For people who aren't familiar with it, could you explain a little bit about how microtransit works? Yeah, it is a ride sharing um, similar to Uber or Lyft. Um, It is a curb-to-curb service. So instead of being door-to-door like you would expect, if you hail an Uber on your app, it'll come directly to your residence and take you directly to um, your destination. Instead, this uses hundreds of already established virtual bus stops. So it's not anything you can see. It's not a pole in the ground. However, it's a point on a map. So if it tells you to walk to Elm and Maine, it might be a block or two blocks from where you currently live. It'll tell you exactly how to get there. You hail it on your phone just like you do with an Uber. You walk out the door, you go down the street. It tells you where the vehicle is, just like an Uber, how long to expect it to get there. It'll pick you up, and then it'll take you to a close destination point just like any other ride-sharing app. So it's very convenient. Um, It's very affordable. I know a lot of the rates here can be exorbitant at times when trying to get a ride-sharing service. Um, I've seen it upwards of $20, $30, $40 in some cases and going to some areas. We serve all the way up to Pender County um, and all the way down to the ferry port in South New Hanover County. And the length of our service is actually longer than the city of Charlotte, if you measure it. So we cover a huge span of area, and it is the exact same price as the cost of riding the bus, which is two bucks. You cannot beat it, and it's a great service, and it's, it's done phenomenally well. And we've gotten almost 100% five-star reviews since it started. 
do you see that as a potential? I mean, you got more funding for microtransit. Do you see that as the future for Wave after you leave? Um, the future for Wave as complementary service, just the way it's designed now. I don't think that um, being such an urban environment like Wilmington, I don't think that it is the best um, is the best choice for a replacement of our fixed route. I think our fixed route has a place, and that's in a urban environment. And I think we've already done a great job of pulling our routes down and just concentrating on the downtown core and the city areas and the places where it's actually needed, and then covering the places that are less dense or um, have less employment centers or other type places, we've done a really good job of just making sure that our microtransit is covering those less dense, more rural areas with that type of service. So what's next for you is Carborough, right? Can you tell me about the position you're taking on? Yes, I will be taking over in June 5th in Carborough as the new assistant town manager. Um, it's something that has always been on my career path. Um, I've always wanted to grow into a town or city management leadership position. Um, Carborough opened up and it is a fabulous place. It is near where I've always lived my whole life, so I'm kind of returning home to the Triangle. Um, Carborough is a fabulous place. It has a lot of um, rich arts and music and um, just has a wonderful culture and is great, and I'm just super excited about going there. Back to the Triangle. Yes. Should be fun. Yes. Will you miss Wilmington at all? Yes, I will. I, you know, I've built a lot of relationships since I've been here. Um, two and a half years. Whew, man, it's a short amount of time, but all the things that have happened over two and a half years, it just seems like I've been here 20 years, honestly. <laughs> I mean, I have made a lot of wonderful relationships. I've got to learn a lot about the city and make a lot of friends and just so many people in the city that have um, so much aspiration for building such a great community. And there's so much promise and um, potential. And I think there's a lot of people, um, people that are in Good Shepherd, people that are in housing, people that are in the different educational segments, um, people that work for the city and county. There's just so much talent and just so much future for this community. I'm just so excited for it. I'm kind of sad to leave. I'm excited about my new position, but I'm super sad to leave. And I feel like I've cultivated such a beautiful thing in transit. And I just I wanted to continue along its path and just do so well. And I'm just so excited for it. Yeah, I can see you're getting a little emotional. Yeah, it's a lot. Um, you put a lot of work into it and you see you see it grow. And it's just it's it's awesome. You know, it's it's just it is awesome. And I have I have made a lot of relationships and it's really cool. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I can tell from the outside that you have put your heart and soul into wave and um, it's benefited from all of your hard work. Absolutely. Thank you. I want to ask before you leave us here, I would love to hear your dream for WAVE. What do you want to see Ooh. this town get in the future in terms of public transit? My dream for WAVE would be for it to have some um, dedicated revenue stream. I want it to be adequately funded so it can do what transit is meant to do. And that's not just provide a service for people that don't have a car that is um, mitigating traffic congestion, that is reducing greenhouse emissions, that is um, just contributing to the holistic 
um, ecosystem of a city and, and, and making sure that transit is considered um, as a priority and not just um, a, a last resort. I want to make sure that transit is fully integrated. I would love for it to be fully integrated in all future plans. Um, we are, I have just talked to the city and they are moving forward with presenting including transit in land use development plans. And that is just huge. Um, there's no requirement for a developer now to include transit at all. And it's being presented to do that. And that, that's another huge accomplishment. And it's such, you know, it's something that is so small, but I think it's going to make a difference long term to, to make sure that, that developers are including a bus stop every time that they build um, 100 apartment 100 um, unit apartment complex and just making sure that that is included in all the future plans. I would love for transit here, wave transit to have more frequent service so that it is available um, and it is competitive to somebody that is taking their car and they may consider, you know, well, maybe I won't take my car today. I'll just take transit because I don't feel like driving. You know, that would be awesome for for Wilmington to get there and I think I think it's possible I think it can be done and I think as long as we continue on the trend that we're on now that it can absolutely happen well thank you Marie I really appreciate your thank time thank you it was such a pleasure that was reporter Kelly Kenoyer interviewing Marie Parker from Wave Transit as she leaves the job for a new position in the triangle and that's about all the time we have for this episode of the newsroom Thanks to our guests today, Dr. Charles Faust and Marie Parker, and to the WHQR production team, Ken Campbell, Jonathan Fernell, and a shout out to Megan McDevitt, who's off to the next great thing, but might still pop up on Weekend Edition here at WHQR. If you missed any part of the show, you can find it at whqr.org, or find the show as a podcast, pretty much everywhere you can find podcasts. If you have thoughts or comments about today's program, or ideas for a future show, Email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Ben Schockman. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next episode of The Newsroom. Newsroom.